0: Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: Hello, I'm Bill Hendricks, Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center, and I want to welcome you to today's Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. The number one question on any young adult's mind is, what should I do with my life? In theological terms, it's the issue of calling, which is really the question of purpose. Why am I here? And to help us to discuss these matters, we're joined today by Dr. Paul Pettit, Director of Placement and Career Services at Dallas Seminary. Paul, welcome to the table. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Well, I know it happens to me every spring, as I'm sure it happens to you. Uh, A student comes into your office, sits down, says, Dr. Pettit, I'm getting ready to graduate here in a few weeks, um, and I really need to figure out what I'm going to do after I graduate. Uh, Two questions. First of all, what goes through your mind when they say that? And secondly, what is it that you then say in response to that question?
2: Wow, great question. I I talked to a young person the other day, and they said they were going to do an internship, and they said they were so excited and so relieved. I said, Why is that? And they said, Well, I'm getting ready to go to Thanksgiving dinner. And I know all the relatives are going to say, What are you going to do when you graduate? He said, I'm so excited. I got an internship. Now I can just look at them and tell them I already got this lined up. So uh, it does weigh on people. And first of all, a lot of people are giving, in, giving of themselves in the ministry. You know, they're pouring out themselves, they're giving of themselves. And so oftentimes they don't take a look inside. And, and slow down and really self-evaluate. They're so busy serving others, that when I'll say to them the same question you just asked, hey, what do you wanna be when you grow up? Or what do you wanna do when you graduate? They'll say, I- I'm not really sure, that's why I'm here. Right. <laughs> or, uh, either that or maybe they've done a couple of things and they don't really like it. You know, they've, they've served in a couple of ways over a period of time and they say, but I know I don't wanna do that. Right. So we do have some starting points normally and we do have some ways of getting at what they're really passionate about and how they've been wired and what they're gifted to do. But, uh, yeah, a lot of people in Bible college, Christian college, seminaries. Uh, they well, and colleges and, in general. Yeah, any kind of uh, service industry especially, they're giving of themselves, and they're pouring themselves out. And so a lot of times they do have a question about what they're really good at and what they're really gifted at. So we, we like to help students do that.
1: Well, and I think I think it's uh, become an issue in our culture over the last few generations. Uh, it certainly was an issue for the boomers, this question, what should I do with my life? Mm. And everybody, somewhere along the way, they assume that college is going to help you figure that out. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they don't realize colleges really have no vested interest in helping somebody <laughs> figure that out. You know, they... For the college's part, I, I my assumption is they, they assume that the student and their parents have kind of figured out what they're going to do and they're accessing the resources of the school mm-hmm. to to figure that out. But the reality is that we have millions of, of young adults graduating lost as lambs as far as what should I do mm-hmm. with my life. And then, of course, um, they'll circle the field, maybe get a entry-level job, and that's not – you know, really appealing, and and so they think, well, maybe maybe I need to go back to school, get another degree. And of course, here yeah. at Dallas Seminary, they're coming back to get a degree that that prepares them often for work in a church. And again, it's that feeling like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do, but somehow when I get through seminary, I'll know. Yeah, so help us begin to give us what's a framework that the person, particularly a young adult, can begin to kind of use to think about in order to answer that question, what is it that I need to do or what is it that I need to know?
2: Yeah. I like to think of two different witnesses. One would be an internal witness. What are you jazzed about? You know, what pulls your chain? What gets you up in the morning? What are you really passionate about doing? Uh, There was a megachurch pastor that said, you know, what is it that you can't stand anymore? What is it that makes you cry? Hmm. That you look at an issue and you go, that needs to be solved. I want to have a part in that. So that would be an internal witness. You know, we all kind of know what we like doing or we all kind of have a vague idea of what we want to do. We might not be able to articulate that. But then equally important or maybe even more important is an external witness. Are other people affirming that in your life? Are there three or four people that are close to you that would tell you the truth? that would say, I can see you doing that. Or when you do that, you do that really well. So we want to get those witnesses to line up. And it's not just grandma, you know. (laughs) Right, right. I've had a lot of young people.
1: to tell you nice things about yourself.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I've had a lot of people in my office say, you know, grandma keeps telling me I'm I'm our little preacher in the family. And the guy says, you know, I hate preaching. (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, In fact, I had a guy the other day, he said, Bill, he wanted to plant a church. He's been talking about church planting. I've known him for a couple of years. He he was talking about church planting when I first met him. But recently, he talked about becoming a children's pastor. And I said, man, you hate children. You know, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, uh, well, you're right. You know, there was an opening, and I just kind of I'm, I'm scared of church planting. I'm not sure if I can really pull it off. And maybe I thought I could just settle and just do this church uh, children's pastor job. And I said, man, let's, let's talk about this. You know, I don't want you to uh, be frustrated. You're going to do this for two or three years, but the whole time in the back of your mind, you're going to say, what if I would have church planted? You know, look at that, my buddy over there, church planting. I wish I could go join him. So we, we go slow. We ask them to tell us what they want to do. And then we also look for signs from mature believers or other healthy adults that would speak into their life and confirm that.
1: Well, that that uh, external witness is very important. It's also important that when you get that, you receive that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I knew a gentleman once, a young man who was absolutely convinced that church planting was God's strategy for winning mm-hmm. the world. And and you know, I don't disagree with that necessarily. Um, this fellow, on the basis of that, said, "So if if that's his strategy, that's what I need to go do." Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, he didn't really have the gifts to do that. He had the heart to do it, and he felt like that was a viable strategy, but he just concluded, if that's the case, I automatically must go do that. And he had adults who had known him since he was a child and said, boy, are you sure? We're not seeing that. And, that, <laughs> and he, he t- to make matters worse, he, he picked a part of the country hmm. which was one of the most difficult areas in which to reach people with the gospel to begin Mm. with. And he moved himself and his wife and bound and determined that he was going to plant churches. And I think, I mean, to his credit, he hung in there for, you know, 12, 15 years, but I don't think he ever planted a church. I I think he got like a couple of Bible studies started and neither one of them turned into a church. Mm. And finally he came back to Texas with his tail between his legs. And Mm. He was kind of a broken man, and I, I always felt badly for him. But you know it, it was in part because he, he hadn't really listened to that wise mm-hmm. counsel, and, and he also hadn't asked a good question, which is, even if church planning is the best strategy, what's my best use mm-hmm. in light of that strategy? Because he might have found that, you know, maybe he's the guy who works with the young adult, uh, the young person in high school and disciples that young kid who when they grow up, they've got the gifts to go be a church planner and he's gotten them on the way. God has room for everybody in his overall plan.
2: Absolutely. You know, when I get frustrated with the church, Bill, I remember that Jesus said, I will build my church. Mm -hmm. So I take comfort in that. Even when I look around and I think, man, that church is not doing it right or this church over here is definitely not doing it right. I know that Jesus is the head of the church and he's calling people to himself and he's moving gifted people around in the body of Christ. You know, it reminds me of, again, the young guy that says, well, grandma says I'm going to be the, family little, the little family preacher. You know, I've been, she's been telling me this ever since I'm in third grade. But I remember Dr. Swindoll one time said, you know, uh, a guy might be called to preach, but nobody's called to listen to him. And uh, that's, again, <laughs> that's the emphasis of that external witness. You know, when you do ministry, when you do things in the church, what do you do really well where people are helped by it? Or people come to you later and say, hey, I really enjoyed that devotional you gave. Or the way you led that meeting, I saw you, you were just in your element. You know, you were doing, using your gift of administration. Uh, you followed up on that. You called another meeting later. Man, When you do administration, you do that really well. So, yeah, there's lots of roles and lots of openings, and lots of opportunities, but what are you going to do where it's a great fit? What are you going to do where you're using your gifts, and you see fruit being, you know, produced, and also other people are recognizing that, and if you can get a lot of those things to line up, and, you know, if you're happy about it, if you're feeling full of joy, you know, nowhere in the Bible are we told to grit our teeth, and Mm -hmm. suffer, and, and, you know, move to a foreign country and drive an old Volkswagen, uh, we're not just suffering so that we one day look at God and say, hey, God, I did what you told me to do. I suffered for 80 years. <laughs> we're supposed to be also full of joy. We're supposed to be giving ourselves, and we're supposed to be seeing impact. So, you know, you don't, I, don't, I tell people, you don't get extra points just for suffering in this role for many years.
1: Well, do you think and and here i'm I'm speaking specifically with reference to uh, occupations jobs within a body a local congregation um, It would appear to me that we end up with something of a hierarchy of of mm. gifts um in in terms of what people think as far as quote ministry jobs obviously a senior teaching pastor you know that's the ultimate. At least in some congregations, and in, in in others, it's it's a missionary. You know, those are the people that have sacrificed, as it were, to to go overseas. But in that congregation, you know, there's a senior teaching pastor, and then there's sort of the other pastors under them, and then you get down to some of the administrative roles. and And uh, is it possible that <clears throat> because we kind of it's just like first Corinthians 12 says we, we give more room to some gifts than to other gifts that the gifts that don't seem the, the, and the roles that don't seem to be as influential, you know, people aren't as interested in those, even though that may be where their gifts lie. Hmm. How do you help somebody uh, navigate those waters?
2: Absolutely. You know, we talk about the face of the ministry or the voice of the ministry and oftentimes those, gifts are prominent someone who's on a stage someone who's on a platform but boy you know we look at our own body and we say i really need these opposable digits you know these thumbs i really need these big toes you know if, if i don't have some of my internal organs this thing's going nowhere so it takes the whole body and all the different gifts and all the different passions to move ministries forward, to move workplaces forward. Uh, we, we say it this way here in our office, Bill, you can go faster by yourself, but you can go farther with a team.
1: Mm,
2: that's good. So I, I like to tell people that because sometimes we get frustrated and we go, that's it, forget it, I, I, I'm starting my own thing, I'm, I'm leaving. But man, if you can work on a team, if you can build trust, if you can build a great group, you think of someone like Coach Tom Landry, or some of the Vince Lombardi's of the world who right. took the time to get to know each member of the team, to pour into them. They can go a lot farther with a great team and a lots of variety of gifts than just uh, a super, bringing in a superstar or trying to do it all by myself.
1: I'd be curious to get your perspective on the landscape of, I guess I'd say jobs uh, within churches these days. You know, the culture has shifted significantly in the last 10 or 20 years. And, um, and of course, when the pandemic hit, many churches, uh, most churches, like everything else in the society, got quarantined. Mm-hmm. And we don't really know what the long-term effects of, of that much uh, time away from uh, meetings on Sundays and so forth is going to mean. Uh, and so we don't really know exactly what it's going to mean in terms of staffing and so forth. But mm-hmm. the trend lines are definitely there in, in which, um, you know, churches, uh, well, let's just put it bluntly, churches may not have the same resources to work with in the years to come that they mm. have had traditionally. I'm wondering what that's going to mean for people trying to find work as a paid employee of a congregation mm-hmm. and what your counsel is to somebody who's, who's you know, hoping to make a living in a church-related job but, but may not be able to do it or may only be able to do it part-time.
2: Yeah, we're, we are seeing that for sure. Uh, you know, we're seeing the tech movement where, you know, when you and I were younger, Bill, someone ran an overhead projector and we just oohed and awed. you know, wow, that's amazing. Look how they can use that overhead projector. Yeah. I mean, now we're seeing satellite campuses. Uh, we're seeing small groups using curriculum that they download. Uh, we're seeing staff getting hired that are maybe part-time teachers, but also part-time running some kind of program online. So we're definitely seeing a move toward tech. But when we look across the whole church landscape, there's a variety of churches, small churches, rural churches, they may be a little bit behind. I've got some people that are telling me, hey, a lot of my people aren't on online every day. They're not logging in every day. And maybe they're having a problem reaching during especially something like this pandemic. But yeah, we're seeing more uh, niche roles. You know, pastor of spiritual formation, pastor of next gen, you know, uh, the old days of just a senior pastor, a CE pastor, and a youth pastor, maybe a worship pastor. Those roles are really getting split up now into really specific type things. You know, uh, mentorships, discipleship programs, small groups. And what I see, uh, one of the big trends, Bill, is for Ministry people, men and women who are very authentic, who know themselves really well. We're moving into an era where you can't fake it. You have to be yourself. People, young people especially, can sniff inauthenticity. You know, they want to see are you real? Do you take this home with you? Do you live this in your own life? So, not just the skill set, but the kind of person we're seeing that's flourishing in ministry today is the person who can build small groups, who can build teams, who can use spiritual formation and and be real with people and be authentic with people and really attract people.
1: Well, you mentioned the word mentoring. And as you know, that's a a heartbeat for me. It's really a life message for me. Um, Talk to us about the role of mentoring in people not only thinking about the purpose for their life and what kind of career they need to pursue. But then as they move forward into careers, the role of mentoring and helping mm. them make tracks in that career.
2: Bill, I get so many young people in my office and they say, I'm ready to go. You know, I want to go work somewhere. I want to go serve somewhere. And then they add this caveat, but I would like to serve for another three or four years under an older, wiser person. Right. right. <laughs> and I, I'm happy for that. I'm glad for that. And I just hope they get connected with the right person. But so often, this person's 27, 28, 29 years old, and they still have that sense that I'm ready to maybe go teach this information, but I really would like an older, wiser person to pour into my life and get me started into this career of ministerial work or uh, maybe parachurch, nonprofit work. I still want an older, wiser person, someone who's been there and done that, to take me under their wing and mentor me and really Pour into me some of the lessons they've learned. So I like that because, you know, it's saying, hey, I don't want to pay the stupid tax. I don't want to go out there and make a bunch of dumb mistakes that I know someone could, could really pour into my life and show me, hey, this is the way, walk in it.
1: Well, and that re- really speaks to older uh, listeners of this podcast or viewers of this podcast. You know, if, if, if you're in a position uh, of, of any responsibility, and you've been at the game for you know, 10, 15, 20 years of whatever career you have, you have a real opportunity to invest in the life of a younger person, not telling them what to do as much as letting them participate in what is already going on, mm-hmm. giving them some responsibility, debriefing with them on how things are going, uh, and treating them like an adult. You know, If, mm-hmm. if, if there's one thing I find... Paul, that young adults desperately want, it's for an older adult to come alongside them and essentially invite them into the adult world mm-hmm. by treating them like an adult, which means giving them responsibility, letting them deal with consequences of decisions and choices they make, but also share in the successes that mm-hmm. the person has and really build them up and praise them when things are going well and and uh, they've, they've achieved something. Uh, yeah. Mentoring has is, is got to be, uh, I think, the church's uh, secret weapon, if you will, because we've Absolutely. known about discipleship for 2,000 years or more, <laughs> and uh, mentoring and discipleship are really joined at the hip.
2: Absolutely. I mean, every Paul needs to have a Timothy. You know, we need to be working exactly. ourselves out of a job. And Bill, one of the things I see with pastoral succession, you know, it's a hot topic right now is pastoral succession because a lot of baby boomers are 60 years old, 65, and they're like, and the ones the ones I see that are doing it really well, they've got some younger people underneath them that they've been pouring themselves into. They call and they say, hey, uh, we've got two or three candidates. We'd like some advice, but it's people that we've raised up. They're almost homegrown. And the ones where they have a struggle, sometimes it's like, hey, I'm 65 years old. I'm ready for you to send me a candidate. And oftentimes my partner here, Greg Haddeberg, says, you've been there 30 years and you haven't raised up two or three young people. So I like that approach. You know, who are you grooming? Who are you mentoring? Who are you pouring yourself into? We don't want you to get to 70 years old and say, okay, uh, send me some fresh candidates. I'm done. I've spent my time here. We want you to pour yourself out into three or four key younger people that uh, everybody in the community knows, wow, this person is ready. They've been sitting in this, See for 10, 15 years. They've been an associate pastor, assistant pastor, a, a student pastor, and they are really ready to move up because we know our senior leadership has been pouring into this person. That's a, that's a better approach.
1: Well, and it's a safer approach. It, it always is safer to go with a known quantity that you have some mm-hmm. history with, and you've seen this person in action over time. You know their strengths, you know their limitations, um, and and but as much as anything, you know their heart because hopefully if they've been with your body any length of time, they've, they've adopted the core values by which this uh, congregation operates. Whereas to bring Mm -hmm. in somebody from the outside. Um, yeah, it's going to, it's going to be a learning curve on both sides. And you also may discover that this person brings some things that you hadn't seen when Mm -hmm. you hired them.
2: Even the culture of the organization, the DNA of the organization, you know, uh, when you've been somewhere and served somewhere, you get to know those families. You get to know that geography. You know, Eugene Peterson was the one that said ministry is always done in a particular place. Mm. And there's a big difference between doing ministry in maybe a, a major metropolitan city and maybe in a rural area or a small town. So all of those things have their quirks. They have their different senses of, uh, you know, what's going to work well and what's not going to work well. So I like the idea of someone going somewhere and trying to say, hey, I'm going to drive a stake in the ground. I'm going to do ministry here as long as I can and and let the Lord use me in this particular area. Now, it doesn't have to be that someone has to stay in the same place. Obviously, people move, people relocate. But uh, oftentimes, uh, unfortunately, we see someone who's moved too many times or moved a lot. And we're back to that question that we started with. A A person can be 50, 60 years old. 30 years in the ministry and may not know themselves really well, you know, maybe bumping their head up into the same problems over and over again with several different boards or several, several different deacon groups or elder groups. And I can see on my software bill, I can see on my chart every three or four years, this person moves and that breaks your heart as well. You think, man, this person is kind of learning the same lesson every three
1: or four years. Or not learning as the case may be.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately.
1: You know, I, I might interject here uh, if I can advertise on behalf of the Hendricks Center. You know, we actually have a program for uh, uh, those who are serving in vocational Christian work who face that problem of they keep, they keep running into the same problem again and again and again, and they can't mm-hmm. seem to get past it. We call it LEAD, and it's a five-day intensive leadership development exercise for a couple and uh, uh, we, we put them together with four different kinds of coaches, a personal and marriage coach, a giftedness coach, a ministry coach, which is really about their vocation, and then what we call a life dream coach. And over five days, it's a very intensive set of interactions with these coaches to go all the way back into their family of origin, into their marriage, into uh, things that, that may be holding them back, but also through that giftedness piece, to to really nail down in clarity, what has God given you by way of making a contribution? And out of all that, they begin to get some new horizons as to, you know, some strategies for, for beginning to get past some of these issues that have held them back mm-hmm. but also to get a fresh perspective on what God might have for them in the days to come. So I mentioned that for the very reason that you pointed out, people – running into that same roadblock again and again, that doesn't need to continue. Oh. Uh, I would encourage people to contact the Hendricks Center and find out more about that LEAD program if that's, if that's the situation for them. Let me
2: second that uh, unsolicited advertisement here. I went through LEAD and I loved it. My, I'll never forget my label. I was an orchestrating organizer with people. So uh, I remember hearing that for the first time and saying, okay, you're going to have to break that down for me. I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. Well, you're an orchestrating organizer. You love organizing things, but you don't love organizing figures or facts. You you love organizing people and orchestrating. And so for 12 years, I they gave me 300 students and they said, Paul, put all these people into small groups. And I said, oh, I would love to do that. And then when Greg Hatterberg called, he said, you know, do you want to serve as the director of placement. I said, well, tell me about it. What is that? Well, you'll take all the graduates and quite a few of the alumni and you'll figure out where they should serve in ministry. So he didn't have to talk me into it. Lead had helped prepare me for that. I knew what I might be good at and I knew what I should stay away from. And when he said, you'll be organizing people and, and putting people into churches and ministries, I knew I, I was gifted for that. So I'll never forget that phrase. You know, I need to get it tattooed on my arm. I'm an orchestrating organizer with people. And boy, when you go through something like Lead, it really brings some clarity mm-hmm. and it really brings some focus. And, and I, I am asking people several times a month to, to consider that. So I, I love promoting so the you, Lead program.
1: Yeah, what you put your finger on there is to have some real specificity, some real definition around uh, what your core strengths really are. Uh, I find many people are very vague on that. You ask them, mm-hmm. well, what are your strengths? They go, I don't know. I'm a people person. Well, you know, what does <laughs> that mean? Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I love to teach. Well, that that's great, but that's pretty vague. What mm-hmm. you're giving there is a very specific. It's almost like describing the, the, the design and therefore the use of a tool. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, what has your name on it. And you also know what doesn't have your name on it. And, and I, I think that, that, tells us something when
0: we, when we talk about, you know, how do I find my purpose vocationally? This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian,
1: you have to vote Republican.
0: Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard.
1: we get it down to that kind of uh, robust description of what you're really designed to do.
2: Absolutely, I remember your father always had a plaque on his desk. It said, as now, so then. Hmm. He used to joke, uh, this this student he had was always five minutes late to class. And he, he said, it wasn't just the first day, it was all semester. You know, He was always five minutes late to class. And he joked, uh, he's probably going to be five minutes late to his wedding. And then he'd always say, he's probably going to be five minutes late for the rapture. So it's, uh, as now, so then. You know, I, I talked to students, I said, what, what did you love doing in middle school and high school? What have you done well in the past? And they'll come back and say, well, I guess I guess I was good at that. I just thought I did that naturally, and I'm like, yeah. Well, let's let's move that forward. You know, what if you could do that in the future? So uh, sometimes we, you know, we don't see our own giftedness. We don't see what we're really good at, and we have to kind of slow down. Now, some people have said, "Petit man, that's way too expensive. I can't afford that, or I don't know if the church will pay for that." But I tell people, look, you're unemployed right now, or you, this is your fifth church in nine years. You know, would you pay three thousand dollars to get? a 60, $70,000 per year position. Right. And obviously they go, Oh yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. So, you know, it's worth it to avoid more, more pain in the future and more searching for, well, I'm just going to switch jobs or I'm just going to try something completely different. Uh, take that, time to get to know yourself. Let other people speak into your life, fill out some surveys, do some phone interviews. And really, it feels selfish too, Bill, for a lot of us. You know, when they talked to me about it, I was like, yeah, I don't need that. I don't want to sit and talk about myself. It feels selfish. But it's really a gift to the church, and it's a gift to other people to know yourself well and to know what you're good at. When you interview and you're trying to fake it or you're just trying to answer questions that the job description matches— you're going to fall apart a year from now because you're going to go, you know, to be honest, I, I never really wanted to do this anyway. I just needed a position. You're doing, your, you're doing your friends and the employer a favor when you know yourself really well and you say, hey, I can do these things really well, but don't ask me to do that. I'll, I'll mess that up. So it's not really pride. It's really a form of humility to know what you're good at and to not to be bragging about that or to always put yourself first, but to see yourself accurately, to see yourself for how God has made you.
1: Well, the illustration I use is imagine a hammer that grew up as a hammer but somehow doesn't know that it's a hammer. Mm. Like, however that happened, the hammer's parents, you know, maybe the hammer's parents were, I don't know, a screwdriver and an egg beater, you know, and (laughs) and they they didn't know what they were looking at. And so they never helped that hammer figure out it was a hammer. But Mm. however it happened, the hammer grows up but doesn't know it's a hammer. Well, what's going to happen? Well, hammers Mm. are going to do what hammers do, right? They, they, the hammer beats on furniture and it marks it the hammer hammer beats on windshields and breaks them. The hammer hits somebody on the head and hurts them. Right. Cause that's what hammers do. They deliver blunt force. What that hammer most needs is somebody, as you point out from the outside to come along and say, mm. Hey, see this. This is what we call a nail hit that. <laughs> and the hammer does what the hammer does, which is to bring blunt force down on the head of that nail and knock it in. Mm. And the hammer goes, wow, that felt great. Well, from then on, any nail will do, right? <laughs> the hammer now knows what it's designed to do. Mm. And so, uh, really, again, I think what you're beginning to highlight here is that among many things that need to happen as people discern their direction, they've really got to have somebody help them get in touch with what is that thing that they are designed to do. Mm. Uh And, yes, we do that as part of the LEAD program. Uh, We have some other tools over at the Hendricks Center. We have what we call a a giftedness discovery workshop in which uh, it's a very fun exercise. We we have people tell some stories from their life to another person, and out of that they discover there's a pattern of behavior that's unique to them that describes a lot of their core strengths. Mm. And then they get to meet with a coach for four or five times uh, throughout the the rest of the semester, but it's it's aimed at that thing of let's figure out what God has put you here to do, uh, yeah, so that you can start to pursue that.
2: Absolutely, because again, ministry, nonprofits, parachurch, it takes a variety of gifts. Mm. We've got now counselors, Christian educators, missionaries, fundraisers, and now we're seeing you know tech people. Uh, Online people we 're seeing facilities types of people, so it takes a wide variety of giftedness uh, to do the work in the
1: world yeah ministries come a long way from the uh, from the early church you know where where it's it 's a room a handful of people meeting in a room uh, that 's still taking place in many places around the world, but certainly in our culture uh, churches are, are are able in many cases to operate at a fairly uh, elevated level. Mm-hmm. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask about, um, you know, some traditions, uh, faith traditions have what is called uh, vocational discernment. Mm. You probably heard that phrase where, uh, you know, they, they've got a, a group of people um, who, this is for somebody who senses that they may be called into vocational Christian work, but before they pull the trigger on that, a group of people meets with them over some period of time to pray, to talk, to talk through some of the realities and issues for this person if they're married with their spouse? Are they both called to this direction and so forth? Um, how might a strategy like that work, uh, let's say in an institutional setting like the seminary, mm-hmm. or perhaps in a, in a church setting where people are trying to discern their, their life direction? Well,
2: what a great question because, you know, the New Testament, warns us, don't lay hands on too quickly. Right, And, you know, we know that to not mean don't do it by 2 p.m. You know, we know it to mean don't do it. Someone's come to Christ. Someone's made a public profession of faith through baptism. And then usually that afternoon we sign them up. But I think that emphasis there is take a season, take several seasons before you bring them into the life of the church as a vocational minister to see them in action and to see them prove their calling. So one would be volunteering, you know, volunteer at a church, serve in a lay ministry for a season and see how does that work? You know, did it work well? Were you energized by that? Did other people confirm your gifts? And another thing that I see a lot, Bill, in those uh, faith traditions are retreats, retreats. And to many busy evangelicals, a retreat is like a dirty word. You know, I remember when we were for 12 years at the Hendricks Center doing the spiritual formation retreats, they started off as like three-day events, almost four-day events. Mm. And, and toward the end, people would say, wait, are you kidding? You want me to spend three days at Pine Cove? I, three, three days, you're saying? <laughs> you know, we've gotten to the point our busy evangelicals are in such a hurry that I think retreats are a powerful way to get away from the noise of the world and maybe do several of those, a spring retreat, a fall retreat, And then also maybe journaling. Journaling is a powerful way to capture your own emotions. What did you feel like? What did you sense when you were doing those ministry roles? And going back and looking at your notes, you know, hey, I did this today in ministry and I hated it, you know, with four exclamation points. And you kind of forget about that. You look back and go, oh, that's right. I I did that. And I, I told myself, I'll never do that again. Or you look back at a journal entry and you say, you know, counseled four young men today, loved it and you, you see that smiley face and you're like, man, I need to get back to that. I need, mm-hmm. I've need. i gotten so far away from my original job description. This mission creep has come in and I'm not even doing what I'm passionate about anymore. So, journaling, retreats, and also small groups where there's a real sense of transparency, a real sense of authenticity. A small group where people like you, but they love you enough to tell you the truth about yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, they're... They, they want to influence you, but they're not impressed by you. And they're able to say, hey, Pettit, you know, let's face it, you're, you're not a theologian. You know, I, I like your popular stuff, but when you get involved in systematic theology, you really need some help there. So, uh, those things are the things I'm seeing in usually more of a high church background, mm-hmm. uh, where there's retreats, there's seasons of small groups with discernment groups for the purpose of that some journaling, and then also, uh, people who love you enough to tell you the truth. So it's kind of a series of events over time where you start to say, I really want to do this. I'm not just testing the waters. I'm not just going to sign up for a year. I'm going to really make this a life calling.
1: Let me ask you about a trend that I have noticed. Uh, it certainly has been something that I've seen in the lead program. Um, but I've certainly run into it in other contexts. Um, Somebody, you know, grows up and comes to faith as a teenager, gets involved with a youth group or something like Young Life uh, in college, maybe a a parachurch ministry and so forth. But they really enjoy uh, getting in there and helping other people learn about Jesus and start to grow in, in Jesus. And somebody comes along and says, you know, you really love people and you have a great heart for developing people Why you ought to think about going into the ministry. And so they think, huh, I hadn't thought of that, but I guess you're right. And if you're going to go in the ministry, you might as well go to seminary and get trained to do that. So they come to Dallas Seminary, and they go through the training, and then they they get out and they get into a church. And sure enough, they get hired uh, onto a staff to, say, work with uh, young people. Only now what they're asked to do is not to work directly with the young people per se, but to recruit adult volunteers who are mm-hmm. going to do that life-on-life work with the young person. And in that one-off relationship, uh, suddenly things aren't going as well because really mm-hmm. to, to work with those volunteers, it's a more administrative kind of task. And, and furthermore, as I say, it's a one-off. You're not seeing directly the light in the kid's eyes when they finally get it. Right. Yeah. And, and they're, they're very frustrated And they're wondering, am I really called the ministry? Mm. And it's made me think at times, I wonder if we sometimes encourage people to, quote, go into the ministry when if they really want to do that kind of ministry, life on life, they'd almost be better going into some other line of work that then frees up their evenings and weekends to do what? Why to go be one of those adult volunteers with Mm -hmm. the youth group or to get involved with young adults and and help them uh, figure out what to do with their life and mentor them and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, have we have we missed something along the way when it comes to quote ministry?
2: Well, absolutely. Ministry is not simply working at a church or working at a parachurch. We think you can do ministry in all different types of vocations. We believe you can do ministry. Uh, you know, I think Martin Luther was the one who said, taking care of small child is ministry. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, we, we put that capital M on the label and say, oh, he's going into the ministry. But wow, what an impact in the marketplace. What an impact in the professions of medicine and law. You, you don't have to be working inside the four walls of a church full time, getting a paycheck from the church to be doing incredible ministry. In fact, I like the way you started that story because it reminds me of the athlete. You know, a lot of times an athlete will be, oh, he was a quarterback. Surely, let's make him a head coach. And a lot of times in college, they find out, well, he's so far away from football, he's spending so much time in the media interviews, the recruiting, spending time with the AD, spending time with the board. He's he's so far far removed from football, he's not even... So that's exactly your story because uh, again, somebody flourishes in a local youth ministry and next thing you know, they're trying to figure out budgets and and boards, and and they're so far removed from doing ministry with people that they wonder, how did they get to this place? Mm-hmm. So we definitely need to broaden our definition of ministry. And sure, some people may be sensing a call to full-time vocational ministry, and we welcome that, but it really needs to be affirmed by other people. It needs to be practiced by that person for several years, uh, don't just rush into ministry and then get frustrated. And also, the life of ministry can be fairly uh, frustrating. You know, it's probably most often lower pay and it's long hours and it's uh, sometimes frustrating. So, we know there's a credible reward serving Jesus Christ and seeing that joy in our life and seeing that fulfillment of God using us. But uh, sometimes I think people think it's an extended Bible study, Bill. They think, uh, oh, I'll just go into ministry. What do you do? You just have a Bible study all day, don't you? Or, you know, hey, you, right. I see you, it. You just work one day a week. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we really, sometimes that older mentor, that older, wiser mentor can help in this too to say, hey, let me walk you through what it's like being in ministry. There's some highs. There's some joys. There's some wonderful moments of uh, Getting returns on your investment. And then there's sometimes where you're really frustrated or you're really, uh, you know, feel like discouragement comes in. So they need a balanced view of ministry and kind of know that it's not all just, you know, Sunday mornings and getting your hand shook on the back door and people telling you how wonderful you are.
1: Yeah. Well, this whole issue of calling, which is theologically what we're talking about here today, it's a huge issue for the church. Um, just to put a context to it, back in 2014, the Barna organization uh, polled a representative sample of of active, what it called active Christians, uh, and it asked them basically two questions. Number one, you know, do you believe that God has a calling for your life? Mm. And, and you know, it was, it was a basically about 100% of people said, well, yeah. And then it asked the question, do you know what that calling is? And about 40% of people said, yeah, I think I have a pretty good idea of it. But 60% basically said, I have a clue what it is. Mm. And you think about that. Here here we're telling people from eternity, God has made you and placed you here and gifted you for specific purposes for which he's prepared you to be the answer to those purposes, to be the answer Mm. to those prayers. In other words, you're here by divine appointment. That's essentially what Ephesians 2:10, among other passages, teaches us. But then we don't arm people with any means to figure out what that is. Mm. It seems criminal to me. It 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 feels like what uh, our friend Tom Nelson would call pastoral uh, malpractice. <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 raising an expectation, but then not not delivered on it. Mm. Any thoughts about what churches uh, as as bodies of Christ and and those who actually are are working with everyday christians could do to to speak into that
2: yeah we need to help bring down that divide that secular versus sacred divide you know uh you know some person is doing research in the marketplace maybe they're uh writing curriculum or uh doing some pretty involved educational stuff and then we say yeah we might let you teach the third graders you know you'll have to go through a two-year training (laughs) Uh, So let's get rid of some of that secular, sacred divide, and let's train people in our churches for what can you do where you're at? How can you bloom where you're planted? You know, who are the people you can most influence, your neighbors, your coworkers? Mm. They're spending 50, 60 hours a week at, at the marketplace in their job, in their work site, and that's their mission field. That's the people that they can really influence. So I hope we're seeing that revival in a lot of our churches now where we're realizing you don't have to be serving inside the four walls of the church just to be doing some type of ministry. We can be using our gifts in lots of different ways in the world. And uh, we need to be salt and light in our communities.
1: Well, I don't know if the name Ray Stedman means anything mm. to you. But uh, he was a very close friend of my father's, a DTS grad. He he uh, uh, was a pastor out in Pasadena for many years, and really the 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 father of, I guess you'd call it the uh, the Body Life Church. At any anyway, rate, yeah. I have a recording of him in 1984 at DTS, and he's speaking on Ephesians 4, and he's talking about the pastoral gift. And he was making the point that the pastoral gift, you know, which we tend to think is the paid professionals, you know, at the church. He said, "Oh no, that gift is actually more widely distributed throughout the body of Christ than mm-hmm. we realize, for good reason." He said, "There's so many pastoral needs in the world. You know, God's got His people in workplaces, in neighborhoods, in homes, in communities, in schools. He's got His people all around out there, and all around us are people with pastoral needs. Mm. They, they, they. You know, they're 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 in a relationship that's troubled. Uh, they're worried about their child." Uh, they 're going through a conflict with a, a friend they 're in need uh, emotionally or spiritually of some sort. These are all kinds of pastoral needs, things that that, that deal with people 's spirit. He said we have an opportunity to be a pastor to people all over the place, and, and God has has given us that opportunity in so many places around us so absolutely so thank- I, I agree. Thank you for being with us today on The Table Podcast to talk about this, this whole issue of calling and vocational discernment. Um, and I want to thank you as a listener for being with us today. Uh, it, I would encourage you to subscribe to The Table Podcast on whatever service or device that you're on so that you'll be kept in touch with the different themes and topics that we uh, talk about here. We always talk about issues of God and culture. Thanks again for being with us. I'm Bill Hendricks. Have a great day.
0: Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.